Let's pray together. Oh God, we are awestruck in your presence. Jesus Christ is our hope in life and death. And so we thank you, Father, for the revelation of Jesus Christ, both in person as he came to be among us, and through the recorded word scriptures that we call the Bible. We are grateful, Lord, that you have made yourself known to us. We are grateful that you have revealed to us the truth, that you do not leave us without understanding. Father, we pray this morning as we dive into the truth of life after death, I pray, O oh God, that you would stir our hearts with the seriousness of, of eternity, of our lives now, of the status of our relationship with you. And I pray, O oh God, that you would just, uh, and I thank you that you meet with us, and I pray that you would be pleased to grab hold of our lives with your truth that would pull us out of the wilderness of wherever our emotions might be in the matter of death and dying, that we might recognize, Lord, that you fill us with hope, that our future is glorious in Christ that we might worship you as we ought, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, of all the wilderness discussions we've had in this series, for certain, the wilderness of death and dying has reached all of us at one point or the other. Either... <clears throat> Those who don't know Jesus, who themselves are afraid of death, or we who do know the Lord, who dread the fact that, that death might and does touch the lives of people we love. And we are, we are continually filled with questions. Death is a mystery. Although we know it's part of life and part of living, it feels wrong and it should. It's unsettling, doesn't sit well. In fact, some may be here this morning, and I know there are, that, that it's still very raw because you have recently lost someone who you love very dearly. We have a lot of funerals at Calvary. We had a funeral Friday afternoon. We have a funeral this afternoon. We face a lot of death. And we wonder what happens to our loved ones at the instant of death? Where do they go? 
What is it like? And, and the scriptures tell us some things, but not a lot of things. And I think there's a reason for that. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was lifted up to the third heaven, he says, he saw things that he wasn't allowed to tell us. Now, I don't think it's because of any, um, you know, ill will or God wanting to keep us in the dark as much as if Paul told us what he saw, we would probably be never satisfied with another day of our life here on earth. So many things have been kept from us on purpose. So how do we combat this sense of wilderness in the face of death and dying? Jesus made a promise and I want to build a case from Jesus' promise today that was granted to a dying thief. Most of us know the statement that Jesus made. It's pretty popular. Jesus looked to the thief beside him who had trusted in Christ and assured him of something. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And for the last several thousand years, God's people have clung to that incredible promise that was made to the one who believed in Jesus. But we haven't always understood what exactly that meant. <laughs> what was included in all of that? And I'm... I'm going to take a, a stab at it this morning with you. I've noted that, I, I, I've noticed that um, the only real discussion that is in story form that we find in the matters of heaven and hell are, are found in Luke chapter 16. And I want, to, I want to provide this as a backdrop as well for our teaching this morning so that although I'm not going to teach from this text, I'm going to teach from a whole bunch of texts. In fact, I discovered that I have 51 slides for you today. So I know that makes you nervous right away. You're saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And uh, that was the intention. I, I actually didn't know. I, I, I just hand the notes to the tech department, and they turn them into slides for me. And then it got, the feedback came back, you have 51 slides this week. I said, Really? Yikes. Okay, so we're going to have to move rather rapidly, and I'm, I'm going to have you all over this scripture text, and you can try and keep up with me, but I've got uh, one of our, our lovely uh, associates, staff, uh, typed out all of the text for me this week so that I don't even have to chase them all over because we would spend time just finding text. Thank you, Tamara. And we have uh, some work to do. So Here's a setting for us. Here's a setting to establish the realities of heaven and hell from Jesus' teaching. And then let's look at some things, okay? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. I'm at Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let, him, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead comes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, the scriptures, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, like Jesus, for instance. Now, Jesus isn't playing games with us here. He's not telling some odd story. This is Jesus Son of God, who knows? So where are they now, their loved ones, who've gone on after death? Well, it seems that we have, there's seven stages of existence for believers. I'm going to run down them very quickly with you. Um, I had hoped this would be one sermon, then I realized, no, it's going to have to be two sermons. If you remember, I, had, I tried to fit it into one point of five points. That was a huge mistake. And then uh, it became a sermon, now it's become two sermons, and it could become more, but schedules are schedules. So it's going to be two sermons. I'm going to talk about where people are who've died, who are believers right now. And next week, Lord willing, I'm going to talk about the real end. What's the real end look like? The eternal end, the eternal state. So here's the seven stages very quick, quickly of existence. There's foreknown. We are foreknown. Jeremiah 1.5, Romans 8.29 talk about being known by God, foreknown by God. To be foreknown by God, even before we existed, is to exist because we were planned by God. In Psalm 139, 13, uh, to 18, it talks there about our conception. It talk, actually talks about our whole life in those f- few verses. But it talks about conception. We were known by God. We were knitted in the womb. He knew us uh, while we were yet uh, unformed. And then in Psalm 139, 16, at the very end of that verse, it talks about physical life. In that verse, in fact, in Psalm um, 139, it, it talks there about... Um, your eyes saw my own unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I think this is an important stop point and just, just to note about our physical earthly life. Beside every one of our names is a date. 
set by God, which is the date of our death. Every one of us. That doesn't change. God sovereignly has ordained every day that we exist in this physical earthly life. And stage four is our body dies. The separation of our soul, the immaterial part, from our body, the material part, is in fact the definition of death. When your spirit leaves, when your soul leaves your body, you are, by definition, have died. Um, James 2.26 talks about the spirit uh, without the body. And uh, Hebrews 9.27 talks about it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And then um, once you... Your body dies, the material part dies, you go into uh, stage five, which is an intermediate state, which is a pre-resurrection heavenly life. Um, because we know that, that uh, there is coming a day when we will be resurrected from, our, from the graves, but not until Christ returns. Stage six is the resurrection of our body when Christ returns. First Corinthians 15, First Thessalonians 4, at the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise. And then, of course, the final is the final eternal state on, in the new earth, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, where we will spend eternity. We're gonna look next week at the resurrection of the body and the final eternal state, but this week we're gonna talk about the present heaven state of believers who've gone on to be with the Lord. What's that all about? And I'm gonna give you a statement, I'm gonna read a statement that covers sort of three sections and that's what we're gonna look at with the time that we have left. And it is this, when a person dies, stage four, the soul goes to a place, stage five. And that place is an intermediate one, stage six. So let's talk about when a person dies. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Each one of us are appointed to die unless we're still alive when Christ returns. There will be some people who actually are alive until Christ returns. But it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes a judgment. Notice that. So when we die, there's an after this. Take note of that, Hebrews 9.27. The material soul separates from the material body. In James chapter 2, verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, or faith, yeah, faith without deeds is dead. So the material part, the spirit, the essence of who we are, our soul, separates from our material body, the uh, perishable part. That is by definition our death. The breath of life ends separation of the two. We find out in the scriptures that the material part of our lives dies and turns to dust because of sin. In the Garden of Eden, the warning of Eden were the consequences to Adam and Eve and all of mankind on the basis of what Adam and Eve did is that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they did, they would surely die. God meant what he said in the Garden of Eden. That's why we attend funerals and have attended funerals for the last six to 10,000 years because God meant what he said. 
And so the material part of our body dies and goes to dust because of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And therefore, material dies because of sin. But the immaterial, our soul, our spirit, who we really are, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, does not die, but continues on. And that's why Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 12, verses four to five, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Some people have liked to perpetuate the idea that those who don't know Christ or don't know the Lord are simply annihilated at death. But that's not true. We realize that when death comes, after death is judgment. So a soul, it, we learn secondly that a soul in fact continues after death. Our spirit continues after death. That's why Jesus could look at the thief and say, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Unbelievers, on the other hand, go to a place of torment in hell. That's why I read the story that Jesus shared in Luke chapter 16 about the rich man who had nothing to do with God and end up spending eternity in hell. A great chasm was fixed that he could not transcend for all of eternity and it was a place of torment talks there about him being in fire and thirsting and wanting his family to be told not to go to this place and so those who refuse the great salvation that Jesus Christ has promised and offered to people end up spending eternity without Christ they refused to welcome the sacrificial payment that Jesus did for them on the cross of Calvary. Will not go to the place where Jesus is for all eternity. They will go to a place called hell. But believers, according to Jesus, go immediately to paradise. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus talking to his disciples said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. He talks about a place. He talks about the Father's house. He talks about rooms. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and 5, verse 2, he talks about a heavenly dwelling. He talks about a building from God. All of that kind of language sounds to me like a place. Doesn't it sound like a place to you? Jesus in the scriptures made it abundantly clear that at the instant of death, those who know Christ go to a place. In fact, um, what we need to sort of wrestle with here is a little bit about how Jesus described the place in kind of several different ways. The Bible talks about several different ways or different uh, descriptions. Jesus talks about paradise. He also talks about the Father's house. The Apostle Paul talks about a building, a heavenly dwelling, uh, a home at home with the Lord. 
I, I would submit to you that the, if you know Jesus Christ, the second, the millisecond you die, you will have a conscious sense that you are finally home. You may have felt somewhat settled here. And you may, you know, when you walk in the door, you know, you had a hard day at work and you walk in the house and say, man, you know, this is a good feeling. I'm home. It's nothing compared to we will finally, finally feel at home. We felt out of home in our bodies many times. We felt disconnected. We felt disjointed. We felt separated from the Lord. We, we felt that there's been obstructions in the way. We will finally feel at home with the Lord. But Jesus talks about this place being the Father's house or a room in the Father's house, which literally is the word abode, abiding in the Lord. I've heard from over the years some some senior saints who've been a little bit frustrated with the translation, new translations that have moved from the King James Version, which says, in my father's, my father's mansions, in my father's house there are many mansions. And they're like, these new translations are robbing me of my mansion. I want my mansion, you know? And... Um, of course, we've got, you know, got the old hymns we used to sing. In fact, I sang at a funeral not too long ago. And if it was your family's funeral, I, I beg for your forgiveness. But, but I've got a mansion just over the hillside. You heard that hymn? And I want just a little silver and a little gold. Yeah, you know... That's, that's not the picture that Jesus gives us here. I know Steve's going to be asking me to sing a solo soon. I know it's coming. <laughs> but this is not the picture that Jesus has for us here. Jesus uses the word abode, which is another grammatical form of the word abide. And where have we heard Jesus teach about abiding before? Isn't it in John 15, when Jesus talks about the ultimate relationship you can have right now with Christ is to abide in the vine. Our, our goal, the goal that Christ has set for us now is to abide fully in Christ. And, and we're, we're, we're rel regularly frustrated about that, you know. We, we realize that today I didn't abide in Christ like I, I should have or could have. Today I didn't embrace all the benefits of what it means to really abide in Christ, to really have that uninterrupted relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is what Christ is painting. The picture that Christ is painting for that second you leave to go to be with the Lord is to go into the abode of the Father. It, the great prize is no longer to have any separation or obstructions or sin or anything in the way at all of a full abiding in the presence of God. Not silver and gold. Gold will be there. Gold will walk on gold. 
won't be wearing it on your fingers anymore. It'd be like wearing asphalt on your finger. Look at the asphalt I've got on my finger. Isn't that lovely? You're like, what are you thinking? Are you insane? Go, no, it won't be about gold and silver. It'll be about Jesus. It'll be about the Father. And, and that's the emphasis here. And he says, I go to prepare you a place. I'm, guys, I'm going to the cross to prepare for you to go to your place. Because I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. That's what I'm about to do for you. That's, that's the preparation he's talking about because he said, he, he stated, in my Father's house are presently, the way I read the grammar, many rooms. Guys, up, up there, Jesus isn't up there with a hammer and a saw making your place. <laughs> Gotta, you know, hey, that's not what he's doing. It's there. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to do something to get you there because you couldn't get there on your own. That's what he's talking about, the emphasis. He's valuing the great presence of God. But he said to the, the thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise, with me in paradise. So we know where Jesus went after the crucifixion. Sorry, Apostles' Creed. You'll be with me in paradise. Now, what did the thief think when Jesus said that to him? What did the disciples who were crushed at the foot of the cross think about this when they heard it? The ancient Greek translators of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, when translating the word Eden, translated it paradisos, paradise. Everywhere in the Old Testament where you see the word Eden, the ancient Greek translators of the Hebrew translated it into paradisos. Eden, it's paradisos. So, that starts us on the journey to understand what Jesus was referring to. And, and Eden, or paradisos, is a garden, uh, a park, a highly cultivated and groomed place. Now, when John, the apostle, was granted a vision on the Isle of Patmos of heaven in Revelation 2, verse 7, John himself says that he saw the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, do you see a connection at all there? Where's the tree of life? Where was the last time we saw the tree of life? In Eden. Now we find out we're looking at the tree of life in heaven, in the paradise of God. Where did Jesus tell the thief that he would meet him? Today I'm going to meet you in the paradise of God. In Revelation chapter 21, 2, it talks about they heaven, the heavens, uh, the heavenly kingdom, the heaven, 
coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the new earth. In, in uh, Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of the Jerusalem that is above presently in Galatians 4.26. In, in the reader, writer of Hebrews takes note of that in Hebrews 11 verse 10, the city whose architect and builder is God. A city. In, in uh, Hebrews 12.22, that city's talked about as the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, if we knit all of these ideas together, it would seem to me that based on these descriptions that the Eden, the paradise that Jesus is talking about, is Eden. And, uh, it's the, and this Eden is situated in the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come to earth. So where did Eden go? <laughs> You know, those of you who are students of the book of Genesis know that when Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. And there was an angel set with a fiery, fiery sword to prevent them from having access to the Garden of Eden. Now, the world has been pretty much totally discovered, and certainly that part of the world. Where is Eden? Don't you think that there should be some massive area that has like fiery angels standing around it that people can't go into? Or did God remove Eden from this dimension and move it to the universe next door to a higher dimension where God and angels and our departed beloved family are? I would, I would submit to you that I think, you know, in, in this meeting this morning, there is a, and I've told you this before, there's a merger of two dimensions every time we gather. There's our dimension, which is 3D, and we're locked into that. And there's the dimension of the angels who get to witness what goes on. They get to see us we don't get to see them. We're not allowed access to that dimension with a couple of exceptions, a few break-ins in the scriptures. But they, at least the angels we know, are allowed to see us. Now, we have uh, examples of that. Remember when Elisha, for instance, asked the Lord to allow the servant who was afraid of the armies that were before them in three dimension, he asked that the Lord would allow his servant to see with his own eyes the army of the Lord, which is encamped all around them. The army that we don't get to see, but beloved, if we could see what God sees, if we, if we knew the Father the way Jesus knows the Father, we would never have another anxious second in our life. Not ever. And so we have this promise made to, um, to the thief. We also, we also know in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 56, that when Stephen was being stoned and killed, he looked up and the heavens opened up for him. This 
universe next door, okay, opened up. And he saw the Son of God standing beside the Father in heaven. We know this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul says himself, I went to the third heaven. He says, whether in the body or not, I don't really know. <laughs> I just know I saw stuff that I wasn't allow I'm not allowed to tell you. Can you imagine hanging out with Paul? I'd be like, Paul, come on. <laughs> just tell me, I won't tell anybody else. You know, those, you know those stories? You're always telling people, just tell me, I won't tell anybody else. And you tell five more people, you always do. <laughs> Nobody keeps a secret. You go to the next person and say, look, I was told not to tell you. So you can't tell anybody. And doesn't that automatically say, hey, I just did this, so you're probably going to do it too. Anyway, don't tell me a secret. I'm just kidding. But heaven in Hebrew is shamayim, which means above or high or out of reach. In Greek, it's oranus, which means to cover. That's an interesting description, to cover. Heaven is covered from us. Because how high would you have to go to get past all of God's creation? Do we have any inkling or any idea how big this the, the universe really is? There are galaxies that are 2,000 light years away or more. It's a dimensional thing, I believe. Okay, so... So that's where they go. But in what form do they take? Because we know that the second we die is not the same as the time we will receive our resurrected bodies, right? We've been told in the scriptures that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. But we also know that core to Christian theology is resurrected bodies. It's core to our theology. But what about in this intermediate time between the second of our death and the coming of Christ? Because it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 and 16, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for died, bodies have died, not them, in Jesus. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And there will meet him in the clouds, and there will be forever with the Lord. So the departed do not have resurrected bodies yet. But they also don't have their physical bodies. So what do we think is happening here. I'm a lot more uncertain about what I'm going to share with you now because the scriptures really have not been that definitive in what the situation is. We know there's a place. We know it's with the Lord. We know it's paradise. It's glorious. It's great. It's awesome. But we don't know what form we're going to be in. Or do we? Well, we're going to be without resurrected bodies until the trumpet of God, which is to join our resurrected bodies and reunite with those still alive. We know that. Whatever your eschatology, we know that. I heard a snicker. Uh, we also know that 
it would appear we have intermediate bodies until the new heaven and new earth. It's, but we have this grand promise from Isaiah that is also uh, recorded uh, by Peter in 2 Peter 3.13. Isaiah 65.17-19. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. We'll talk about that next week. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Peter follows up with this in 2 Peter and talks about uh, all of this burning, all of this, the, 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 the earth and the heavens and the new heaven and a new earth. Which is what we have to look forward to. But what about... Our form, bodies before the resurrection or not? Are there any hints at all in Scripture to help us? I think there are some, but again, I can't be, I can't be dogmatic about this, but let's examine a couple of the Scriptures to find out what happened to people who've gone on before us and yet made a visit back, because there were a few. So we have, depending on how you understand it, we have... Uh, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 28, verse 14 and following, we have the, um, the uh, record of a horrible moment when Saul went, King Saul went to the witch of Endor and asked for her to conjure up Samuel to give him some advice. Samuel had died. None of us have ever known what to make of that text. It's, it's always been kind of a, a thing for us. But... There are a couple things that happened. And interestingly, in the text, in, in 28.14, it says, what does he look like? Saul asks the witch vendor, what does he look like? And she says, an old man wearing a robe is coming up. Now, I had never paid much attention to that particular description before or even thought much about it until this sermon. And I thought, wait a minute. Saul looks like an old man. I was not counting on that being my look in heaven. You know what I'm saying? I was, I was thinking, in fact, I think I've told you over the years that we'll be the perfect age, which I think is around 33. We'll all be 33 in heaven. That's what I think. But now Samuel shows up as an old man, so I'm not liking that. If it was Samuel or it was a demon, but we don't really know because it it's just a really bizarre moment. But I'll just say that the form was a person. Maybe better example is Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17, 3 and 4, where the disciples encountered dead Moses and dead Elijah. Not dead. They showed up to have a conference with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and appeared to know exactly what was going on. They, had a, they knew exactly what Jesus was up to and what he was doing and all of that. And they appeared, you know, you didn't see Peter say, John, did you check out Moses and Elijah? Were they anything like you would have thought they'd look like? Like, they didn't look anything like a person. No, nothing of that happened. So they must have come back looking exactly how Peter and John and everybody thought they were going to look. We also have angels. When angels visit, they take on human form. And in Matthew twenty-two thirty, Jesus said, in the resurrection, you'll be like angels in heaven. 
Now, he was talking about not given to marry, marrying and not marriage. And then we have Lazarus and the rich man, and there's the appearance of, again, forms, bodily human forms, able to sense torment, agony, thirst, sight, touch, comfort, all of that. So those are some of the things. But maybe the final sort of picture in, in digging this out is the vision of John in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when John has a vision of the martyrs in heaven. And here's how the text reads. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain before the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, because, sorry, because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. There's some observations we can quickly make. I'm just going to run down a quick list for you here. It's, some of it might be symbolic, but, but I, I'm not convinced that, you know, we, we have throughout the scriptures symbol, symbols and literalism riding together. You don't take either of them apart, not just symbol, not just liberal. There's not just literal. Literal and symbols locked together. And here we have, they're wearing clothes. They're given garments to wear. We, we see them, uh, they seem to know the earthly events that are going on. How long until you avenge? How long are you going to allow, Lord, for people to be martyred for your name? How long, oh God? Now, possibly the angels have been giving them a, a report or the Lord Jesus have been giving them a report. I, I, we don't know for sure, but, but maybe they have visual accessibility to what's going on. Can... They can call out to God. I mean, in the Lazarus rich man story, there was visible accessibility. They can pray. They do pray. It looks like imprecatory prayers, prayers that we've always wanted to pray but weren't allowed to. Finally, we can. You know, how long, Lord? And perhaps they're praying for us. In fact, they are praying for us calling out to the Lord. They remain as individuals, not different, just relocated. In Revelation 7, 9, there are faces and the waving palm branches. Now, this is a vision that John had of present heaven. They're in Revelation 8, 6, they're playing instruments. Hebrews 9, 11 talks about a perfect tabernacle and ceremony. They're time aware. How long, Lord? How long? How much longer? They're still learning from God who is sovereign over the scheduling of the death of martyrs. Acknowledging, you see, we are told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, who were killed just as they had been. Divinely appointed to be martyrs. I don't know if you're aware of this, brothers and sisters, but every single day, according to the voice of the martyrs, 400 believers 
are martyred for their faith. Today, 400 of your brothers and sisters somewhere in the world will be martyred for their faith. How long, Lord? And they're in God's presence. And somehow in Revelation 19, 6 to 8, this redeemed throng of people who we love, who are already there, we may in fact be in this picture ourselves. Earth's heard as a great multitude in Revelation 19, 6 to 8. Like a roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear. Somehow the saints of God are aware of the imminent victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over all of his foes, where he puts all of his enemies under his feet and turns over the kingdom to the Father. Somehow they know. So let me wrap this up for us, at least wrap up present heaven Next week, we'll look at our final destination and how we get there. Fasten your eschatological seatbelts. We have some work to do. Here's what we know for certain. When we die or one of our loved ones who knows Christ dies, we remain conscious. Our body and soul go separate ways. But we're aware, we're interactive, we're sensory. We go to a place called paradise. The paradise of God. The heavenly city. The abode of the Father. It's glorious. Even if Jesus didn't tell me very much, I want to go right now. I want to go right now. Those who don't know the Lord go to hell. Until Christ returns to establish his eternal kingdom, currently in the now, not yet phase, and those who've gone to hell are brought before Christ in the great white throne. Judgment for final destination. We are forever with the Lord or forever separated from Him. At the moment of death, there is no more opportunity to choose. So, having delivered this to you, I would be completely negligent to not ask the question of this audience and of the one that's online this question are you ready to die are you ready to die 
because beside your name, every single one of us, whether you know Jesus or discredit him, beside every single name on the face of this globe is a date that does not change. It's the date of your death. It's appointed unto man, man and woman, wants to die, and after that, the judgment. Are you ready to die? It's not if, it's when. Today is the day of salvation because not a single one of us here knows the date that's written beside our name. We don't know that date. It could be when you're 15, when you're 29. Some people say, well, I'll just, I'll put off this decision. I'll, I'll wait, you know, when maybe I'll get sick or I'll get old or whatever. You know, I'll, I'll take that seriously then. Well, beside your name, the date might not be 90 years old. It might be 19. Or Jesus might come back today. There's no more time to make that decision. Today is the day to be ready. Father, thank you for your truth. You've not left us ignorant of your ways, your things. You've given us enough, Lord, to look forward to, but not too much that we would be discouraged to even live another day here. You are a hope in life and death. We love you. We thank you for the salvation granted us by Christ Jesus. I pray, O oh God, as we are pondering the question, are we ready to die, that the answer might be yes. With everyone who's here and listening, but if not, oh God, I pray that the work of your Holy Spirit who draws us to yourself without which we cannot come to you would draw estranged hearts or hearts that have been on the fence or waffling, waiting, maybe another day would realize that today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed another minute. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As we go from this place today and the question resonating in our hearts, are you ready to die? I just want to share with you that I am 100% ready. I'm not sure if some of you are saying, well, I, I hope I'm ready or... I'm kind of ready or I'm not sure I'm ready. I, I'm 100% sure I'm ready. And, and that's not a, a, a braggadocious statement because I'm not ready because of who I am. I'm ready because of who I'm trusting in. I'm not ready because of anything good that I have done. I'm not, I'm not ready because of any of the works that I have done because they're all like filthy rags. I am ready because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for me and I put my trust in him. That's how we're ready to die, beloved. We're only ready to die if we have put our full confidence and trust in the work that Jesus Christ did to make us ready to die. 
by forgiving us of our sins and us trusting in him to have paid the price for that. And so I ask you again, are you ready? And if you're not certain, I, I urge you to not leave this place without speaking to someone. If God is pulling on your heart, don't leave this place today uncertain or unsure. Or if you're online and you're uncertain, you're unsure, call us. Leave us a message, we'll call you back for sure. Because this is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Are you ready to die? Because it is appointed unto all of us once to die. And after that, the deal is done. There's no changes after that. Who you are is where you will be. Father, I just pray this morning that by the saving work and power of your Holy Spirit that you would choose to draw those to yourself who have been running from you or are not following you. I pray that you would choose by your Holy Spirit to encourage your people, O oh God, with these truths that they might set, their heart, might set their hearts on firm ground of confidence because of what Christ has done for us and what waits for us is truly glorious. And for this we thank you and praise you because Jesus is our hope in life and death. In his, in his name we pray, amen.